This is Creative Heartlands. I'm your host, Stuart Lawn. Each episode, I interview creative practitioners from the Sligo, Leitrim and Roscommon areas. We hear stories of how they got started, the types of projects they're currently working on, and how they use digital technology to enhance and improve their practice. Creative Heartlands is an Enterprise Island project run through the Leitrim Design House in conjunction with the local enterprise offices of Sligo, Leitrim and Roscommon, with support from the arts officers in each of those counties. I'm delighted to be joined on the Creative Heartlands podcast this morning by Margaret O'Brien. Margaret is an artist who's currently residing in County Leitrim on a residency at the Leitrim Sculpture Centre in sunny Manor Hamilton, where we are. Margaret works with immersive installation using a combination of sculpture, live sound, light, moving image and kinetics. Her approach is experimental and explores ideas of failure through artworks that operate within a live state of malfunction or breakdown. Good morning, Margaret. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. So first off, welcome to County Leitrim. How are you enjoying your time here with us? Is it going well for you? Yeah, it's going really well. I'm actually, I'm loving it here. I haven't been to Leitrim before, so I was very surprised by the landscape, which is stunningly beautiful. Um, uh, I think I thought it was more going to be more like the flat Midlands so I was quite surprised by how mountainous it is and how beautiful it is. I found it also just a, a very welcoming environment. And it's, it's very familiar. I, you know, I feel like I've been here before, even though I haven't. So it's been a residency that kicked off very immediately for me. So, yeah, I've been loving it. I'm going to miss it when I leave. Where do you hail from yourself? I'm from Clare but I've lived more or less between Dublin and the UK um, for most of my adult life. So I left Dublin again about three years ago and uh, currently now in Liverpool in the UK. Okay. And did you grow up in Clare? Is that where you uh, spent most of your childhood? Yeah, I was born outside London in Surrey. And when I was seven, we moved to West Clare to Ennis um, in County Clare. And so I grew up there and then I went to college, to art college in Limerick and then Dublin, and then London, um, and then Dublin again, and now Liverpool. <laughs> right, okay, so you've, you've been around. Yeah. And do you want to just briefly explain what the residency at the Sculpture Centre is going to be about? It isn't open yet, We're, you're just in the planning and making stages, and that's kind of how we got to hear about each other yeah it's an eight-week residency so roughly you know approximately six weeks of from making uh, researching and making of course and then there's about two weeks installation and then a three-week exhibition so I'm kind of I'm just coming to the end of my research making period and I start installing next week so my interest in coming here was related to the bog Um, And the fact that there's a lot of wetlands within the area. And I had done some research around certain plants that emit sound at a particular frequency when they're stressed. So um, tobacco plants do and tomato plants do. And And I was really interested in, you know, how exciting it might be if you could 
um, make this sound audible, you know. Okay, so what frequencies do they uh, transmit at? Actually, I, can't, I did write that down, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But it's quite easy to find. I think if you just Google it, it'll, yeah. it's there. Um, but it's not within human hearing range anyway. No, it's not within <laughs> human hearing range. But in the course of my researching this, I came across um, a, a Dutch company called Plant E that were generating, uh, that were using electrons in the soil to power small kind of devices that don't need um, a, a great charge or a high charge. So like things like LEDs. And I had read as well that uh, plants that grow underwater or are in wetlands produce a higher electron yield than those in drier soils. So this, this is where my interest in coming here grew from. So um, part of my residency here has involved developing a microbial fuel cell using the soil sediment. So within that sediment, the electrons are generating and running around. And um, so I'm, I'm kind of transferring that live electron activity through to sound. So I, you know, it, that's very experimental. I wasn't sure how to do it and I wasn't sure if it would work but I had the expertise and help of two scientists, two microbial scientists in NUI Galway. And along with them, we have developed this kind of prototype that does transmit a very musical uh, kind of sound. And it's very varied as well, because the, you know, the activity of the electrons is pulsing and it's irregular rather than steady. So the sound it's producing um, varies, you know, uh, in terms of its frequency and its pitch and all of that. So you showed me a video of that, and it's really interesting. We'll try and maybe get a, a clip of it for the for the end of the podcast. Even the sound I would describe as is kind of like a biological theremin, you know, the, yeah. the musical instrument that you play by sort of waving your hands in front of it. But instead of waving your hands, the microbes are kind of waving their hands and generating <laughs> electricity. That's being converted into into sound and musical pitch, basically. So that's one of the centerpieces of the exhibition. Yeah. Yeah. And overall, is there a theme tying all of this together? Yeah, I think there's probably two things at play in the work. One is, or I'm interested in the idea of failure, but I kind of use that as a means to experiment in a way. So there isn't one idea of failure. Failure is this kind of vague concept that could be nothing or could be also everything, depending on your own thoughts and desires and limitations and things like that. So, you know, failure also has, a, I think, a, a very kind of emotional um, context and a psychological context as well. And the way I work is experimental, at least for me and for my knowledge and my own limitations. So there's always a risk that the thing isn't going to work, or even when it is working, it's always teetering on a very precarious kind of line. And I like that. And it's live. And it, I like that because that kind of makes the work authentic to me. So I'm not depicting failure. I'm actually trying to embed failure into the work. Obviously, yeah. it does have to work. Otherwise, it really does <laughs> fail, you know, and then, yes. you know, so it's yeah. always it's, it's got to be on this fine line, um, yeah. which is very exciting. But it's also, you know, makes me anxious as well. I, I was, <laughs> so there's yeah. kind of that aspect of it. And then there's the 
I call it bedroom science. It's low, lowbrow technology, really, because I don't have any formal training in any kind of technology or electronics and things like that. But I like to discover how to do things myself. And so, you know, that's really important to me that I do know how things are done and that I can do them myself. So I often feel like I'm, you know, like a, a teenager tinkering away in the bedroom, you know, making these strange things that half work. And that kind of introduces a level of humor into the work. So I think that's also a binding element between the pieces. And then, of course, I'm really interested in electricity as a material. And I think that's what probably pulls all the works together as well, that in some way in each of them, there's some transformation of energy from one form to another or from one manifestation into another. Um, so in all of the works, there's a kind of a conversation or a kind of a circularity of the energy that's going through one manifestation and changing into another, but it's not diminishing or going anywhere. It's just kind of reflexive yeah. and re repeating. I'd wrote down a few key words here and you, you've just pretty much used every one of them in that last sentence there. Oh. Electricity, tinkering, movement. <laughs> so I just want to dig into that. If this was an episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson, I imagine your material of choice would be electricity, which is, which is interesting because we don't necessarily think of electricity as a material. It's kind of an amorphous concept to some people. How did you discover electricity as a material for your work? Because it seems more scientific, but you say that you're kind of a bedroom scientist, but uh, it does seem a lot of what you do has science embedded into it to some degree. So yeah, where did the, the electricity as a material concept first come to you? I think it was probably um, with a piece I did in 2004 for the end of my MA show. And I was using a fluorescent light. I was user, using the flickering of a fluorescent light. You know, when they're dying and they keep flickering and it's really, you yeah, know. Yeah, I have one in my garage at the moment yeah. that I need to replace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll take it. Um, <laughs> I, I was interested in the kind of psychological charge of that, you know, that if you're in the space for long enough with something like that, well, me, I end up feeling really anxious and really on edge. And I was, you know, I started to become interested in the relationship between the physical and the psychological in that sense. And so I just amped up the tube, the fluorescent tube, and that charging of that little spurt of electricity trying to ignite the tube that transferred into this booming sound in the space, this booming crashing sound. Um, and I think that was the first piece where I started to see that electricity has a physical and a material aspect. As time went on and I started to work with it in, you know, in different kinds of forms or through different artworks, I became interested in it as a, you know, it, it is this intangible kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, we all use it every day, but you can't get it and hold it or, you know, and it's really, so it's volatile. It's really fragile in a sense. You can't really see it. You can't touch it. You can't anything. And yet we're so dependent on it. And it does manifest in all the different sensory forms that we have in our life. So I did another piece quite a few years later where I did try to expose the electricity visually. When I say I did try to, it took me about a year's research, but I did achieve it in the end. I was working with nichrome wire. I was interested in the fact the electricity is always hidden. You know, it's encased in the wiring. 
and we can't see it. And what happens if you expose that, then it doesn't work anymore, you know, and so it's yeah. really fragile. So I worked for a long time through another residency in Helsinki, the Helsinki International Artists Programme. I worked with them in Templevar Gallery Studios and I developed a piece um, working with nichrome wire where uh, you could see the electrons pulsing along the wire. I, I also cited it in the bog in Westmeath um, because I was interested in the relationship between the bog yielding, you know, being used for energy for generations. And yep. so I exposed the, this nichrome wire. I had a series of them running along a certain length of the bog. Um, so I exposed them and the electrons miraculously did, you know, pulse in the open air for a period of time, I think for about three hours. It's translated now into a one minute video piece. But that was that was a very experimental piece of work. Uh, I think a lot of people just recognized it as a work in progress, but it was one of my most formative pieces because it kind of broke all the rules and it isn't an object. I'm not that interested in the object. I'm interested in what's happening within the presentation. Inside it. Yeah. For those that don't know, and I include myself there, what is nichrome wire? Okay. So nichrome wire is the filament that you might find in your toaster or your hairdryer. Okay. Yeah. It's the electrical wire, the electrical filament that comes on, you know, goes red within the household appliances. So I had to do, there's various kinds of nichrome wire with different uh, resistances and different capa electrical capacities. Some of them come on um, and go red at a lower voltage or a lower current and others take longer. Um, so the hairdryer ones were beautiful because they were coiled and they would pulse on just at the center initially. And so I, I developed a number of works where these wires are coming on and off as part of the installation. They are dangerous and they will burn if you touch them. But obviously I've got them behind a perspex shield in a sense or screen. So you can, they're there, they're not completely covered, but you can't really touch them. But very volatile, yeah, very volatile material. I have to ask the question, in dealing with all this electricity, have you been electrocuted <laughs> yourself? <laughs> Actually, or should I say, how many times how many have you times? been electrocuted? Actually, <laughs> only once and only recently, would you believe, I think I was boasting that I hadn't ever electrocuted wow. myself. And uh, I was taking a show down and I had I'd taken apart the extension lead and I'd forgotten that I'd taken it apart and I put my hand back to get it and I put my hand right in the wire and I really did. I got a bad jolt that day. That evening, my hand swelled up quite red and was pulsing. So that was a pretty bad one. That's the only one I've had, though. Yeah, that's the only one. Okay. Yeah. So you treat it with respect it deserves anyway. Yeah, I do double check. I think this day... I think someone was distracting me. <laughs> Somebody was talking to me, but normally I, I check every time I'm going to touch something. It's everything is unplugged. Everything is unplugged. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just want to go back then. When you were going through school and going through college, what kind of projects were you working on then? And how have those shaped what you're doing today, if at all, you know? Yeah, probably 
a very different things I was working on then. I uh, it's funny. Just uh, at the weekend, I was talking to my niece, and I was saying I wish I'd done physics in school. Um, I wasn't very math. You should have been a so scientist I, instead oh, of an artist. You know what? <laughs> if I hadn't been an artist, I, I would have loved to have been a scientist. I did chemistry in school. I did chemistry and biology. Uh, I think I just, you know, I was only a teenager, so I think I just didn't have the discipline to go with physics. But if I was returning, I would definitely do physics. And then, yeah, we had a very traditional art department in our secondary school. So, you know, we didn't really do even a lot of sculpture or I hadn't even heard of installation. It was more or less 2D painting and drawing. And I was quite good at drawing. I was never good at painting. So if you couldn't handle or if you weren't good at those kinds of areas, I guess you thought you didn't like art. But when I went to college, my mind opened if you like and I discovered things I discovered printmaking and sculpture and all of those things so I then did my BA degree in printmaking so it was still 2D based actually when I finished there I went to Dublin and joined a print studio and as I continued and sort of I started developing as an artist and I was beginning to exhibit a lot and I was working through screen print at the time but over those few years, my thinking changed and I started developing unique pieces. So they weren't additioned in any way and they were on very large scale sheets of aluminium. So I guess my thinking was kind of moving towards being sculpturally based and 3D based anyway. And um, when I then went to do my MA, I stopped printmaking and I just felt a bit felt frustrated with the 2D language and I knew I wanted to progress into something more spatially based but I didn't know what so I, I basically spent the two years of my MA trying and testing everything every kind of learning I could get my hands on and I would say it was a tough couple of years because I didn't know where I was going and I didn't know where my language was but just I think in the second half of the second year I started working through installation and through using different elements to kind of combine and present a whole. And that's how I continued. One project that caught my eye, just looking at your, your website, was a project called The Long Goodbye, in which you, well, basically you invited people to come and have a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to describe that project? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, um, I needed a few cups of tea while I was making that project, actually. Okay, so that piece of work, I built a 16-foot square cube out of 10,000 cups and saucers. Um, there is a kind of a doorway at the far end of the cube. So when you enter the gallery space, you're met with a wall of cups and saucers, and you walk around the side of that. So three solid walls. And at the fourth wall at the back, and um, there's a kind of a doorway, I suppose, in a sense. And when you enter the cube, there are other smaller freestanding walls of cups, different, a different kind of cup to the outer walls. And these inside freestanding walls have undulations or kind of buckles in them. So they look very fragile and they look very um, kind of impossible in a sense, I think, physically. So I think the heartbreaking thing about that piece was I was thinking about just our interrelationships and our fragilities and things that break down in terms of our interrelationships and how we repair them and they carry on. And so I, I wanted it to have a sense of um, impossibility in terms of the material and the scale and the engineering, but also to be very fragile and 
have a kind of sense, even though it's a still piece, it's object based in a sense, but I wanted it to have a, a sense of being live. It was on a, a very low false floor. And so when you walked around the piece, the walls kind of shifted slightly and they chinked ever so gently against one another. <laughs> Again, that, that's sort of that, 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 that edge of failure coming in there. Yes. Are they going yeah, to topple? Ex <laughs> exactly. And I have to say, I wondered that the whole way through until the very end, um, because clearly I couldn't set that up in my studio mm. ahead of time. So um, it, that really was like a very exciting but anxiety-filled installation because up until the very end, I was dealing with what might happen. I was trying to troubleshoot ahead of time so that it wouldn't happen. And then I had done test pieces at a certain scale in my studio. So I had built panels of um, eight by four cups, if you like, and um, to test that they would hold and to figure out where I needed to put the supports and all of this thing. But then when you increase the scale, things change, of course, and you can't preempt those changes until, the, yeah. until you're doing it. So I did have to deal with a, a few things kind of in the moment, but we got there in the end. But Something that's overlooked now in the piece and is unnecessary now in the piece, but I thought was very ne necessary at the time, was that before I built the thing, I spent months smashing and piecing together those cups and saucers by hand. You can't really see it. You can see it up close. You can see the cracks and the little holes. But so I spent months doing that. I was in a very small studio with these massive pallets of cups and saucers. I had no wind <laughs> for the studio. And I really felt like the girl who has to weave or spin the straw spin into the gold. Straw. <laughs> yeah. I really did. And I was working against the clock and it was really hard. And the funny thing is like, and it is quite funny, that when I built the thing, as soon as I started building it, I realized I didn't need to do that. It's already fragile by nature of the material and the scale and the engineering. So all those months of endless smashing and gluing, smashing and gluing in the end were unnecessary. But I, um, it sounds like that yeah. <laughs> in itself was, was a bit of therapy smashing. In. <laughs> Well, in the beginning, but after doing it for probably four months, but day after day after day and hours, long, long days, you know, it's nice for a while, but then it's the monotony of it and how tedious it is. And the fact that you have to get a certain number done yeah. every day, you know, so there's this pressure, but you can't really go any faster. But I, I sort of started to think like a factory line. So I would, I figured out if I had 10 I could do them in groups of 10 and that would be just enough time for the glue to start to get tacky as I went along. So, but yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> production line techniques. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> just coming back to the uh, electricity and electronic side of things. One of the devices that you're using in this new exhibition is a microcontroller unit called an Arduino. Do you want to talk about how you got involved with electronics and, and Arduinos and what they are and what they mean to you? Yeah, sure. In recent years, I've been working with a very gifted digital technologist called Mark Ferguson. He also teaches in uh, NCAD in Dublin. He's based in Dublin. So we've worked on a lot of my installations together and he's handled a lot of that side of it um until probably recently i'm i'm trying to carve out the time to learn a little bit more myself so i've been using arduino as something that reads a sensory input and then 
controls the activation of certain other objects in the installation and in relation to that sensory input. I still have to learn how to code and things like that. I haven't managed to get that far with it yet. And I suppose when you have somebody like that, that you can work with, it's easy. And time is always short, as you know, you know, there's never enough time. So it's easy to farm out that side of it. And we also, I guess, worked very well together in that Mark's knowledge is vast. And so when I'm talking to him about how I might want things to be or how experimental, you know, how far we can go with the experimentation of it, his suggestions and his input are very creative and very critical and also really valuable. I do like that we have a a really good connection in that sense. But I do feel I'm a little bit frustrated, I suppose, just on the technical end of knowing how to do things. And um, that can make me feel anxious sometimes when I don't know how to fix something or things like that. So I'm working on that a bit more. But the Arduino as a a kind of interface between, say, a composition, a sound composition, and then that being the interface between how the projector might come on and off or the neon or a heater has been crucial, really, to certainly the last few years of, of work that I've done. I'm using it in a couple of pieces in this upcoming show in uh, the Leitrim Sculptures Centre as well, and also will be using it with a piece that you are going to work with me on, Stuart, <laughs> where we're going to manipulate the mor- morphology of a certain metal called gallium using light-dependent resistors and the sunlight on any given day. <laughs> that, that's the plan. <laughs> that's the plan. That's the plan. Yeah. But again, we're we're walking that line between success and failure, which is the interesting bit. We know how it should work, but like you say, until you actually get it in the place itself, you don't know whether it will work. (laughs) Exactly. But that's the exciting bit. That's the exciting bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, I I say I threw that over to you there because, uh, again, I don't have the technical expertise. I wish I did. I will keep sort of moving forward with that. Um, as best I can. But so I'm slightly in the dark as to how we're technically we're going to do that in terms of how the light dependent resistors are going to connect or, you know, communicate with the Arduino. But um, I'm looking forward to learning that. And also, you know, I think it's important to say as well, it's definitely true. I never know whether the thing is going to work until we start doing it. But there's not one way of something to work. There's always multiple ways a thing can work. And oftentimes, if not all the time, when it doesn't work the way I thought it would, we always, me or whomever I'm with, you know, we always troubleshoot and necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. And I would say that's absolutely true because oftentimes this, the resolution you discover through something not working is sometimes far more interesting. Yeah, you mentioned it earlier on. I just wanted to go back on this as well about tinkering. Obviously, we love tinkering in the Fab Lab here. And that's it's really what it's all about is taking something, a technology that you have a little knowledge of. And I think there's a great quote someone said, you know, it's like, learn enough to be dangerous. <laughs> That's excellent. (laughs) So, and that's the idea really is to try and learn enough to be dangerous with something, be it a a material or concepts or or, or ideas that you can develop. Is that tinkering element especially important in what you're doing? Yeah, it is for me. You know, I sometimes think for somebody who is really knowledgeable and really well-researched and well-learned in 
technology or electronics and, you know, what I'm doing must look ridiculous because it's lowbrow for sure. But for me, when I'm making, there has to be an element of discovery. Um, and so uh, I don't need it to be the most sophisticated manifestation of what it can be. It's what kind of hooks me and, you know, makes me get up and get in and keep going is when I'm trying to discover my own way of resolving something through the limitations of the material or, again, through positioning it on that fine line between breakdown and functioning or through a technology I don't have knowledge of and I'm kind of plowing my way through in the dark trying to figure it out. So it's not that I'm making discoveries for the world at all. I'm not, but there's an element of discovery for me. And I think because I'm doing it in a inexperienced, lowbrow, solitary sort of way, maybe slightly unexpected things happen. Or I discover that I can do something slightly unexpected with something that I would never have known if I gave it to somebody else to do. Yeah, let serendipity take over and... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Just in terms of other digital technologies, aside from the microcontrollers, the Arduinos, do you use any other digital technology or have you used any other sort of digital technologies, digital fabrication in in previous work? Not so far. I have done some training quite a few years ago in Max MSP, but I didn't use it. It was only very basic and I didn't use it at the time and so I've forgotten it. And recently I did some um, training in Blender. I haven't used that yet either. I was very excited by that though. So I think before that, you know, falls out of my head again, before I let too much time go by, I will return to that. I think I'm someone who's, I need a physical relationship to a material to some extent, but I'm also interested in the relationship between the physicality of something and then the immateriality of something else. So I don't want that to sound too vague, but so for example, I'm interested in how digital technologies can influence or affect analog things. And so I'm kind of interested in that line in between them. So I don't think I'll probably work for the moment in one field or the other. I I think I'm interested in what happens when you put them together. You're interested in that interface between analog and digital and digital and analog, like you say, using sensors to turn that into sort of digital data and also turning digital data into sort of physical movement through sort of like the kinetic side of things. You've used sort of motors and and projectors. And and is it that kind of movement that they give you that repetitive movement? Is that something that really interests you as well? Yeah, I've been interested in repetition and I've explored repetition for a long time in the work. I'm probably doing it a little bit less so just in the last few years, but certainly for 10 years, I've been exploring repetition as a kind of a philosophical construct. And I've done a lot of written research around the idea of repetition as something that is ever self-producing. So it's not a representation in a limited sense. It's a kind of an active generation of something that doesn't stop you know if that makes sense so like I started becoming interested in repetition as a a kind of a mechanism that continually presented this other thing so you know it it presents something but then when it repeats it it cannot present the same thing a second time exactly 
because, you know, no two moments can replicate each other. No two thoughts can replicate each other. So, you know, by nature of us as temporal beings, the repetition cannot repeat in exactly the same way twice. So it's always, there's always a change in the repetition, no matter what. So I started kind of exploring it in that, in those philosophical terms. Uh, I probably keep that kind of quiet because I'm aware that eyes can glaze over and, (laughs) and I totally get that, you know, I mean, I totally get that. So I don't talk about that too much, but it's, it's been underlying in the practice for me. So that's where the kinetics come in and the coming on and off of a thing, you know, so even if I work with moving image, it will usually be a very short clip. It's not a narrative based thing. It doesn't have a beginning, middle end. It's a, it's always a, a circular repeat, but when it's repeating, it's not happening in the same way twice. And also then in that sense, it always comes back to the psychological for me and kind of our psyches as as individuals in society. So I'm kind of interested in the psychological impact of a thing that's repeating. So it changes the context of the thing and then it changes our relationship to the thing. So for example, if you've got one spoon, it's a spoon, but if you've got a thousand spoons, you know, standing on plinths in a gallery, it's no longer a spoon in a way. It's yeah. about something else. Yeah. Um, so I'm int- I'm very interested in how the the context of the object changes immensely through repetition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One project of yours, again, that I saw on your website that brought that to mind was the this gatekeeper project where you use a very simple material, something I have oodles of in the, the fab lab here, which was cable ties. Um, yeah. was, was that a big piece of kind of guerrilla art or, or were you actually commissioned to... Uh, <laughs> cable tie up uh, a whole load of fences (laughs) yeah yeah no it wasn't guerrilla art but I do like the idea of it being guerrilla art Um, I think it was guerrilla-ish in the fact that I never took it down Um, I think it was only supposed to stay up for a week Uh, it stayed up for years I think it's gone now but years later when I was driving by I still saw it on the fence yeah I was gonna say do you want to tell us where this is and what, what what it is (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, it's in. It was sited at Marino College in just at the bottom of North Strand in Dublin. I was invited to do a piece of work for part of the Five Lamps Arts Festival, and it was an outdoor piece. All the works were outdoors, I think, for that festival. So I was just looking at how those kinds of railings are used around the city. And in Stephen's Green, there's a obviously a large green, and there's a large area of railings, and a. a I think every Sunday, a lot of amateur artists come and they present their artworks or their wares cable tied to the railings. So I was drawing connections between it being the arts festival that a lot of railings in Dublin are used for presentation of artworks and things like that. And I'm interested in cable ties as a material. And again, when you repeat the cable tie, there was thousands of cable ties as part of that work. And when you repeat the cable tie, it becomes something else. I don't know what it became, but it was no longer a cable tie on the railings. <laughs> it became sort of these strange spikes and cactus-like shapes. Yes, it looked very jungle-like almost, but very natural because it had the kind of repeating patterns that you see in nature where ferns and leaf patterns kind of de- develop sort of symmetrical patterns yeah yeah it was like that actually and it was very formal in its arrangement you know and systematic in its arrangement but it also when you looked at it up closely it was kind of organic in a sense like you're saying and it did reference those kinds of formations in nature 
So it was quite simplistic in a sense, uh, in, in terms of the, the concept in a way was me kind of pulling on that idea of art outdoors, you know, public presentation railings, but then doing something unexpected and a little bit inventive with how I use the cable ties. I think we installed over two days and I had a, you know, a lot of volunteers helping, but it was a long, cold two days. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad I got a few years out of it. <laughs> I'd hate to be the uh, person with the clippers coming yeah. to uh, to remove them all. Well, I, that was why I didn't. <laughs> I couldn't. After spending two long, long, like about 14 hours each day installing in, in October in Ireland, I, I couldn't one week later come along and start trying to take them off i think that's probably why they stayed up for so long that nobody wanted the job <laughs> fair enough <laughs> just going back you were saying one of the digital technologies that you were interested in learning more about was blender for those that don't know blender is an open source 3d modeling and animation package what is it about blender that's kind of piquing your interest and where mm. do you think you know, that might go for you in future? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. And it's helpful for me to cast my mind back to what I was thinking of when I did the course at the start of the year. My intention with it really was that so when I'm proposing works, I can better visualize them before they're made. And I can, you know, my, the visuals that you might put in with an application are stronger and they, they can illustrate your ideas better and all of that. But as I was using, I mean, I only learned it on a very basic level, but as we went through a series of stages with it, I started to become, and I'm interested in the relationship then between, or how you can build a relationship between what you might be designing or creating through Blender and uh, 3D printing. Okay. So I think Creatively, I'm interested in exploring that. I don't have something specific in mind yet, but I'm, again, kind of interested in that gap between the 3D Blender and that software and its existence, you know, in, in the screen and then it becoming an output through that software. Yeah, it's what we call uh, bits to atoms. Bits to atoms, lovely. Um, oh, lovely. That's a lovely yeah. phrase. <laughs> Which is where the whole concept of Fab Labs came from in the first place through Professor Neil Gershenfeld in MIT. He has the Center for Bits and Atoms oh. there where they're looking at exactly that idea of transferring digital data into physical things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's looking at building the Star Trek replicator for real. So, wow. <laughs> uh, wow. That's amazing. What's interests you is that relationship between bits and, and physical. Yeah. And I, again, I suppose it's very related to the way I'm working at the moment that, you know, the energy just transfers through to another form. And in that transference, unexpected things happen. So, I think that's what I would be trying to. Uh, establish or you know engineer in a natural way between those two modes would be that I think I might be a bit disappointed if what I modeled in Blender printed out exactly in 3D form I, I want something to happen in between some kind of glitch or you know I know I have to, might have to manufacture that to a certain extent but <laughs> don't worry 3D printers aren't quite as flawless they're as flawed as any other technology okay. um, <laughs> well good <laughs> I can show you lots of failed 3D prints fabulous <laughs> so if you're looking for failed 3D prints then there's certainly a lot of latitude there to, to generate some of them yeah 
Brilliant. Well, that sounds in a way perfect, in a conceptual sense for the work. But yeah, I think that comes from my printmaking days. I mean, that's why I elected to do my BA studies degree through printmaking, because I always loved that what came off on the paper was not exactly what you thought was on the plate or the line or the word or the screen or there was always something surprising or you know a little glitch in that transference and I suppose what I'm what I'm interested in through these other media isn't that different. Yeah that's really interesting. Where can people find out about your work? I've got a website www.margaretobrien.co.uk I'll also be on the Leitrim Sculpture Centre website as well. I think from next week, there'll be some information specifically about the residency and the exhibition. I'm also on the artist residency pages of um, the Irish Museum of Modern Art and the Fire Station Artist Studios, Dublin City Council, uh, National College of Art and Design. I'm just listing off the top of my head now. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Yeah. And and are you a frequenter of social media at all? Do you use Twitter or Instagram? I use Instagram and I don't really use Facebook anymore. I prefer Instagram because it's more image based and tends to be more relevant. I only use social media for work purposes, so it tends to be more relevant um, for that. Uh, I don't really use Twitter, although I do have a Twitter account, just to say that I did take a break from Instagram in August and I haven't yet returned. (laughs) I was only supposed to take a week. I haven't yet returned, but I'm sure that I will once this show is up and running. That's fair enough. We'll get some links in the podcast show notes. So thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast today and good luck with the exhibition coming up in the Sculpture Centre. Like I say, we'll, I'll try and put some clips of the microbial cell at the end of the podcast here so people can hear the sound of microbes making music. Lovely. Which is uh, <laughs> quite fascinating. So thank you very much. Lovely, Stuart. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Creative Heartlands podcast. If you wish to get in touch with us, you can email us on creativeheartlandsdesign at gmail.com. We also have a YouTube channel with special content. Just search Creative Heartlands on YouTube. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.